News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show, and I would like to welcome to the program Lise Wheel. She is a um, former federal prosecutor, a trial lawyer. A, uh, you've probably seen her provide legal analysis for CNN, NPR, Fox News for years. She's the author of now 20 books, and the latest is A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging spy. Lise, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Certainly, certainly. So first question, uh, let's just start with Robert Hansen. Who was this guy? Why should people care? Well, this guy was, uh, you know, sort of generic upbringing, middle class, the, the son of a police officer. And he gets into the FBI. He's an accountant by training, gets into the FBI. And within the first year, he solicits the Russians. The Russians don't go to him, but he goes to them. And says, look, he doesn't identify who he is, of course, but he says, look, I got all this top secret intel that I'm willing to give you for cash. And so starts a 20-year relationship with the Russians where he's giving over information of our top secret, highly classified intel regarding the Russians. And also, devastating for these people, he gives over the names of people that we've turned, uh, Russians that we've turned to work for us. So people living in Russia that are working for us as spies, and that information obviously is critical, and he gives that information of those identities to the Russians. The Russians promptly execute those people, which is obviously bad for them and bad for their families, but really bad for United States intelligence at the time. And he did that for 20 years without being discovered. So one of the people uh, that he outed was a fellow by the name of Dmitry, is it Polyakov? Polyakov. You got that right. Okay. All right. Well, there's a, there's distant Russian heritage on one of my sides of the family, so I think I just I tapped into that. It's genetic, I hey, think. You know, I should have had you during the audio <laughs> read of the book because I was I had to go through all these Russian names. Oh, I can imagine. Hard. Which, uh, by the way, before I circle back to him, uh, so this is, I I think I heard you say in one of, uh, in an interview I was watching uh, the other day that, uh, that this is what you did during the pandemic. This is how you spent your time. You just wrote a, wrote another book. That's exactly right. And, you know, I had to do a lot of research for it, which meant interviewing people, finding people in the FBI and the CIA at very top levels, and getting a hold of them. And ironically, it was probably easier during the pandemic because people had more time on their hands. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, you know, get a hold of all of these very top-level CIA, FBI operatives, former and present, who gave me, you know, such great intel for the book. Um, but, yeah, that, that is how I spent my pandemic, was writing a spy in plain sight. Well, and they probably were, like, suffering from uh, isolation and such. So, like, hey, here's a new person to talk to. I'm happy right. to take your phone call. Uh, so it kind of right. worked to your advantage. Uh, exactly. So- and, be, and being a federal prosecutor and also the daughter of an FBI agent, you know, when I mentioned my dad's name, they're not going to hang up the phone on me, right? They're going to at least talk to me and hear me out as to what I'm asking them for. And not everybody acquiesced to an interview, but I got a lot of great, a lot of great firsthand, first, first sourcing material for the book. You did. And uh, so let, let's go back to Dmitry Polyakov. Uh, he was known in the intelligence world, right, as Top Hat. Uh, Top Hat. And yes. so who was he and how did Robert Hansen essentially get him killed? Well, he was a guy that was fine for us for years and probably one of our best Russian assets. And, of course, 
Robert Hansen, being at the top level of the counter-espionage unit in the FBI, knew the identity of Dimitri, right? And so he, one of the very first things he did to establish his relationship and his credibility with the Russians is turn over the identity of Top Hat. And I'm I, I kind of graphic in the book, but I tell, I tell exactly, you know, what happened to him. I mean, he was executed... Um, by fire, right? They 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 tortured yeah. him, and then you wrote that they they turned the table that he was laying on and had him slowly slide into a, a burning fire. I know, L- lovely images. Yeah. Well, and then <laughs> but, you, I thought it was intriguing that that they they videotaped this. I guess this is how you know this, right? Is because they they made a video of it and they use it as a warning. Yeah, a warning to others who might do the same thing. I mean, the, the Russians are brutal. I mean. You know, not, not not like we would be kind to double ass, you know, Russian assets here, but we didn't execute Hansen. We he's now in solitary confinement, uh, twenty three hours a day in a supermax facility in Florence, Colorado. And the, I guess the one hour where he's out, he kind of hangs out with the Unabomber because they're together there, and they both have one hour out of isolation. Oh my God! Could you imagine the size of the egos in that uh, yard, in that prison yard? Well, I know, because both of them, now that you said that, that's interesting, because it made me think that both of them, Kaczynski and Hansen, I think one of their fatal flaws is they thought they're the smartest guy around, right? Mm-hmm. They're just so much brighter than the, than the FBI, for Hansen's case, so much brighter than any of the other FBI agents, and he wasn't appreciated enough by the FBI, and he felt lonely, you know, that's sort of Kaczynski. You know, same thing. He thought he was the smartest guy. He never made social relationships. Uh, Hansen was deemed or called the mortician because he always wore black, and he had kind of a dour expression on his face all the time. But they both thought they were brilliant and the smartest people around, and they kind of needed to show it off, you know, and get that get that rush. Right, because he started spying for the Russians, and, and you make a point of this also in the book, that uh, he was not recruited. He volunteered. Right. He showed up to to their doorstep, essentially, and said, here's some information, gave him Top Hat's name. So, right. And he had done this almost immediately upon gaining entry into the FBI. So, like, how much of that was really because he was sort of disgruntled versus, as you mentioned, in his mind, he's thinking he deserves way better than to be assigned at whatever post he got assigned to. Exactly. And money played an in, played a part. I mean, he was on an FBI salary. His wife didn't work. They had a lot of kids and they wanted, you know, he'd send them to private schools. When they went to New York for that posting, he chose Scarsdale, which is out in Westchester County, a very, very affluent suburb. They really couldn't afford on his FBI salary. So money played a part. Uh, but I think it was money and ego. You know, smartest guy. James Bond kind of allure. He always fashioned himself sort of a James Bond character. And I know that because I spoke at length with his best friend, Jack Hauschauer. Um, and Jack said that, you know, when he was a kid, he sort of fancied himself kind of a mini James Bond. More like Dr. Evil, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but whatever. That's what was in his mind. And then the crazy thing is, and, and, and by the way, you kind of have to step back in stuff like this and you know, we're all normal, I would say, and you have to think sort of abnormal. You have to think like a criminal thinks, like what motivates a criminal. And for him, it was the James Bond, the money, the being the smartest guy. But then also, crazily enough, and I know this because I spoke with his psychiatrist, Dr. Charney, 
for, at length. He, um, he thought he was actually doing us a favor, Americans a favor. Like, if I show the Russians where our weaknesses are and they exploit those weaknesses, then we're going to shore those weaknesses up. We're going to be better as a country. Crazy thinking. Crazy thinking. Yeah. But again, you have to kind of get in the mind of the criminal that you're writing or, or researching about. You called him at various times in the book, uh, citing people who knew him. They called him odd. You said that's the word that came up all the time. Uh, but he was a CPA. He had poor interpersonal skills. Uh, some people uh, uh, mentioned psychopath, psychopathic, yep. an arrogant jerk. And I think you described him as a techie and info system guru in the FBI's IT backwater. So that's, for that's, f- yeah, that's for f- right. That's exactly right. Because the, the FBI is still kind of in an IT backwater. They, they're not known for, you know, they're known for kicking down doors and arresting people, right? They're not known for their great IT or computerization, and it was awful when I was a federal prosecutor working with FBI agents who had to, you know, type up their notes and send them to the Midwest to get to get the transcripts. I mean, it was ridiculous, and they're still that way. But mm. um, Hanson, because he was an IT guru, they kind of, the other agents sort of just, hey, let Hanson go over and do that. Let him do that. He'll figure all that out. Well, he was getting to our top secret, you know, so... He was uniquely positioned for the work he wanted to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Lee Sweel is the author of the new book coming out May 3rd. It's A Spy in Plain Sight. We'll have more with Lee Sweel in a moment. (music) News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, The Pete Callender Show. We're talking with Lee Sweel. She is uh, the author of a new book. It is called A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. He was a double agent who spied for uh, Soviet and Russian intelligence services uh, for about two decades. His espionage was described as the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history, led to the deaths, the executions of uh, CIA and FBI assets over the years. Uh, he was also spying at the same time Aldrich Ames in the CIA was spying as well. I mean, this was sort of a golden age for spying, Lise. Uh, and yeah, I, yeah like well, it, I, I'm trying to fathom the amount of damage that those two guys and others, because I think right when they were investigating to find Hansen, they came across another guy that was a, 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 a double agent. That's right. I mean, a, a guy named Potts as well, and then and Ames. And Ames was a CIA agent, as you mentioned, which maybe excuses a little bit the FBI for not looking internally when they were looking for an additional mole that, that Ames, it wasn't, they realized it wasn't Ames, they were losing other information. But they didn't want to think that it was one of their own. I mean, the FBI is built on a trust culture. Once you're inside, you're trusted. But, you know, Hansen was there 20 years, and he never underwent any random polygraphing. There was never an updated security clearance done on him. Uh, not an updated financial disclosure, anything like that. I mean, that's changed now. When I was a federal prosecutor in my fifth year, they initiated another security clearance on me and and background check. So they do that, you know, to make sure you're not susceptible to blackmail, et cetera. And so that's changed since Hanson, but it's not enough in my estimation. We need to be doing more because it could happen again. Uh, There's one of the things that struck me as I read the book that the number – and just the repeated incidents of, I don't know, ineptitude or missed clues. I think you call them puffs of smoke where people, they, they saw stuff, 
it 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 tripped a trigger with them somehow. They reported it even. There was the uh, the the security breach where uh, uh, where what he he gave secret information to a Soviet defector. Right? There was an investigation into yep. him after that. His own brother in law said, "Hey, you might want to check into this guy. Uh, my wife found stacks of money on his dresser, and nothing." Exactly. Exactly. The brother in law, Mark Walk, who was in the FBI said, you know, that his wife, had, his Hanson's wife had found all this money in a drawer and that they were talking about retiring to Poland during the height of the Cold War. I mean, and they, you know, so Mark Walk went to a supervisor in the FBI, and I've spoken to both of them, both Mark and the supervisor, and, you know, the tale of what he said is very, it's very divergent, one from the other when you talk to them. But, you know, Mark Walk says, look, I tried to turn him in. There was that example. There was another example where he was hacking a computer. They caught him. And Hanson said, oh, I was just showing you, the FBI, where your weakness is, you know, how easily you can be hacked in, how easily we can be hacked into. And they said, oh, okay, well, just go fix it. (laughs) I mean, so there were all these puffs of smoke that they just didn't want to think that it was Hanson. They didn't want to think it was one of their own, even even though he was creepy and odd. So do you think that that's still that culture, that mindset still exists? It does. Uh, it, it, and, and for good reason in some ways, right? You, you've got an FBI agent that's your partner that you work with. You have to rely on them. Trust them. You're going into dangerous and volatile situations. People have guns and stuff, and you need to know that your partner is, you know, you trust the partner. On the other hand, you know, the coin of phrase, trust but verify. Keep verifying because... Uh, that trust can be misplaced, as it certainly was with Hanson. So how did they catch him? Well, they, they, used, they, they turned another person in Russia uh, who finally got to them a tape recording of his voice speaking with the Russians and a, small, and a fingerprint. But that wasn't enough because they couldn't go to court with that. You're not going to put a, you know, some kind of shady Russian character on the stand who's been paid for the information, paid handsomely, by the way. So they had to kind of set up a sting operation to catch him. And it was crazy because Hanson was going to retire. It was mandatory retirement for him when they discovered this, about you know four months off from retirement. So they set up a sting operation where they caught him dropping and making a drop for the Russians. They caught him red-handed. And when they caught him, he said, what took you so long? Mm. <laughs> you know, he almost expected it, I think. So that was, that was my next question. Do you think that he knew he was about to be caught? I, I think somewhere in his subconscious, yes, because that was such a strange thing to say. Um, but I'm not sure about that because, you know, he'd gotten away with it for so long and probably found him, thought he was invincible. But he certainly made a mistake there at the end. Right, so maybe the ego dictates that, no, I'm not going to get caught. But then when he is he caught, the ego. ego dictates that, oh, well, this was so easy, I'm surprised you didn't do it sooner. So either way, the ego <laughs> tells him. All ego, all ego, exactly. All thinking, I'm the best. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm invincible. I can get away with this. And, you know, the thing is that really, really struck me is that when we're talking about Hanson and these characteristics of needing money, of being an egotist, of being a narcissist, all of that, um, of the James Bond allure, the excitement, those are universal traits, right? They're, they're not just handsome traits. They're, they're lots of people, well, I don't know, lots, but, you know, 
enough people. Well, in media, especially. There. I mean, we do come from media world, so yes, maybe a lot of people in our in, in who we've come across. <laughs> yeah, have those have those characteristics. Yeah, you get somebody like that in the FBI, and if if they're not enough stopgap, it can happen again. And and that's and that's just not, that's not me saying it. That's after talking to all these people in the FBI and CIA, top level, top level, who said when I asked them, could there be another Hanson today? And they said, absolutely. And then they, many of them followed up with, and there probably already is. Yeah. Now, that's pretty scary, especially given our current relationship with Russia. The name of the book is A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hanson, America's most damaging Russian spy. Lee Wheel, thanks so much uh, for joining me today. I do appreciate you spending some time with us. You got it. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. And uh, again, the book is now available, uh, or will be available, I should say, May 3rd. It is out, so find it at your favorite book purveyor. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks again to Lise Wheel. She used to be on the O'Reilly Factor all the time, remember? For like 15 years, she was their legal analyst, former prosecutor. So now her uh, new book, Getting Ready to Hit the Stands, if you are into the, uh, you know, the true crime, if you're into history, you're into the FBI. I almost wanted to ask her, like, but I, I, I'm not, I, I I did not want to ask her this because it's not her area of expertise as pertains to this book, right? This is about Robert Hansen, but I kind of wanted to ask her, so is it possible that like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and Jim Comey and like all of those guys, that they're the raging narcissists with egos too? Because they kind of fit that mold too. No, all right. But uh, thank you, uh, Lisa. I appreciate you coming on the program. Um, speaking of Hansen, Mm, bop. No, I'm kidding. But uh, this is a uh, report out of studyfinds.org. That's it, It's a website. It's a clearinghouse, an aggregator of studies. Hence the name studyfinds.org. New study reveals the personality traits most likely, uh, and the most likely people, rather, who are posterior orifices in your life. Yeah, study reveals the personality traits of... Jerks, let's say. Jerks. Researchers from the University of Georgia say that the most likely people to be the biggest jerks in somebody's life are middle-aged men. Just to be clear, however, these are not the only individuals who display signs of hiney voidery. The team surveyed nearly 400 people. Um, and then uh, ask them about, or uh, yeah, ask them about uh, who were the biggest jerks in their lives, and then they were able to determine personality traits that these people display regularly. Now, I don't know how they were able to uh, to carve out of the study the people who were the jerks who may have just been part of the study, right? It, it, like, think about it. If you go into this uh, researcher and uh, the researcher asks you, okay, uh, think about the biggest jerk in your life and describe some of their personality traits, and uh, then you do so. But what if you're the jerk? What if you're the biggest jerk in everybody else's life? 
I got questions. Along with noting the top three behaviors people say make somebody a jerk, the group had to answer three questions. Here they are. Number one, do you think that person knows their behavior bothers people? Do you think that person knows their behavior bothers people? All right. Number two, do you think that person cares that their behavior bothers people? And number three, do you think that person could change their behavior if they really wanted to? So do they know? Do they care? Could they change? Which to me, well, of course it's obvious why middle-aged men ended up as the most likely jerks. Because they're middle-aged, right? So could they change their behavior? Yeah, probably not. Middle age, kind of set in your ways by that point, right? This has been working for you up till now, theoretically. Um, do you know that the behavior bothers people? Have you met men generally not really in tune with their feelings or others for that matter? I know I'm being, I know I'm stereotyping over generalization maybe, but the truth is general, right? And there, there are some truth, uh, there is some truth in some of the stereotypes that exist. So guys, not really... Not really in tune with the feelings. Do you think they care that their behavior bothers other people? No. Even if they are aware that it bothers other people, I still think they wouldn't care. Generally speaking. Because again, it, they're, they're men, right? Like that's, so yes, it's pretty obvious that men are overrepresented in the jerk demographic. Common theme is that they actually allegedly know their behavior bothers others, but they don't care. Uh, they are described as somebody who is not agreeable and is angry. Not necessarily being antagonistic towards people, but they just didn't really care about what others were thinking or how they were perceived by others. They often struggle to control their anger. Uh, they are often irresponsible, and they hold bigoted opinions. Remember, bigoted just means you are unwilling, I shouldn't say just, but it means you are unwilling to uh, entertain new ideas based on new information, which is kind of like setting your ways. You have ideas, you have these beliefs, and you're not going to change them, even if presented convincing, compelling evidence to the contrary. The researchers also found that respondents have many complaints which are, are specific to their own worldview, these included uh, people calling someone a jerk because they don't wear face masks. Or people calling someone a jerk because they voted for Donald Trump. Oh, I see what happened. They they interviewed too many. Yeah, they interviewed too many liberals. That's what happened here. That's probably. <laughs> That's it. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, a reminder. Tonight. 6.30, so in a mere, not even, five hours, we're going to have the debate. Three Democratic candidates running for Mecklenburg County Sheriff Gary McFadden. He is the incumbent. Gina Hicks and Marquise Robinson, uh, they will all participate. It is hosted by the Fraternal Order of Police, and WBT's Brett Jensen is going to do the moderating. Again, it starts at 6.30, right here exclusively on WBT. It's going to run 90 minutes, commercial-free. Stay tuned.
Talk 1110-993-WBT. So the North Carolina primary uh, up in uh, District 4, uh, the 4th Congressional District, this is the district that is uh, currently represented by David Price, but he is retiring after like 7,000 years in office. Uh, He's a Democrat. It uh, means that there is an open primary now for uh, the for the candidates to replace him, but it's still a Democrat district. So whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to win the seat more than likely. So Thomas Mills, who we've talked to before in the past, he's a longtime Democrat strategist. Uh, He's a blogger. He's the founder of politicsnc.com. And he wrote a piece the other day saying that the fourth congressional district race is a microcosm of the Democrats problem nationally. He says, uh, first off, well, the two the, the two front runners, the bigger candidates, I guess, are State Senator Valerie Fushi, Fauci, Fauci. How she pronounces that? Anyway, uh, Valerie, and then you got the Durham County Commissioner Nida Alam, who is apparently uh, she's one of the proteges of Linda Sarsour, as I understand it. Anyway, these are these two candidates he says, are proxies for the larger battle that's brewing within the party. Finance reports show that Fushi, the state senator, has received almost half of her money from a pro-Israeli PAC, the AIPAC, AIPAC, uh, right, or AIPAC, AIPAC? Anyway, pro-Israeli political action committee, their bundling operation. Why? Because, as I mentioned, the Durham County Commissioner, Nida Alam, is a protege of Linda Sarsour. And so she says really crazy anti-Semitic stuff sometimes. It's the Jews. You know, that sort of thing. The fight lays out the divisions clearly, says Thomas Mills. Alam and her campaign are representative of a neo-McGovern wing of the party that has relatively broad support within the party, but whose electoral strength is concentrated in more urban areas. Oh, by the way, Mills does not focus on any of the uh, the Semitism stuff. Um, although uh, he does say that Alam supporters have accused Fushi of being owned by APAC uh, and attacked the organization as racist. Okay, so uh, so so he does make mention of it, but this is the undercover. And by the way, this woman Nida Alam. Uh, would totally hook up with the squad if she if she wins this seat. So this is the fight inside the Democratic Party. Don't call it a civil war that only occurs inside the GOP. This is Democrats in disarray. That's the uh, preferred uh, narrative. All right, so back to this Thomas Mills piece. He says, Alam and her campaign are representative of a neo-McGovern wing. George McGovern? that has relatively broad support within the party, but whose electoral strength is concentrated in the urban areas. They can win some primaries, and they can hold safe Democratic seats, but they are far to the left of a majority of voters nationally and in the swing states the Democrats need to win the Senate and presidency. Because they don't face electoral challenges themselves, They can use bigger megaphones that define the party in terms that alienate centrist voters who are the very voters the Democrats need to win in more competitive districts. The same sort of dynamic occurs on the Republican side, too. 
And by the way, this has been going on for a long time. People want to pretend that this is all new because of the Republican gerrymandering and all of that. This has been going on for a long time. There is an age-old strategy, if you will, in campaigns where uh, in the primary you run to the base and in the, you know, which is usually to the right or to the left, and then you tack back towards the center in the general election. Everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows this. And for years, the, uh, the trick was to shore up the base without giving your opponent in the general too much ammo from your primary. Does that make sense? You don't want to go, you don't want to go full left wing, right? You don't want to go all the way there, you know, screaming about defunding the police and all of that stuff, because then you can't get back to the center without your general election Republican primary or a, a general election Republican opponent using your primary uh, sales pitch against you. So you want to you don't want to go too far off to that side, right? Fauci's campaign is becoming a victim or Fushi rather. Fushi's campaign is becoming a victim of an inept and out of touch Democratic establishment that has allowed itself to be defined by its left flank. The party's dominated by a collection of interest groups that try to elevate their issues to the top of the agenda, despite often having limited appeal. And it's, again, part of the problem when you have your base pushing the entire party towards some sort of uh, more radical position that is a dead-bang loser come general election time. And again, defund the police is a really good example of that. And a position and a policy that is not supported by the vast majority of voters, but the people who, you know, scream the loudest and actually influence primary elections on the Democratic side of the aisle, it matters to them. And they do actually want to see police departments defunded. The primary is representative of the mess that Democrats face nationally. There it it is. Democrats in disarray. The left flank overestimates the popularity of its agenda with rank-and-file voters, and it underestimates the damage it does to the Democrats nationally. Again, the defund the police argument is a really good example of this. The establishment, though, can't figure out how to offer an overarching message that focuses on pocketbook issues for fear of alienating their funders at the interest groups. Again, this is coming from Thomas Mills, Longtime Democrat campaign consultant, strategist, candidate himself. By the way, he was dismissed on the Twitter machine I saw uh, over this piece by, I think it was Erica Smith's campaign folks, or maybe it was Nidal, uh, uh, Nida Alam's rather. I almost said Nidal Hassan. That's not his. No, Nida Alam, uh, who dismissed his critique here because he's a white guy. He's an old white guy. He's a Democrat, but it doesn't matter. Um, He goes on to say, if Alam wins the primary, it'll be a big win for progressives in May and indicative of a much larger victory for Republicans in November. In other words, don't let the radical lefty win the primary, Democrats. We shall see. Then there was a kind of related piece. Saurabh Omari writing at Compact Magazine, compactmag.com. And uh, I don't know his politics but in reading through this article, it, it seems he is of the left. Uh, but he goes after the magazine, the socialist, the communist magazine, uh, Jacobin. Have you heard of this 
publication. It's been around for a long time. But they spent an entire issue, their latest edition, devoted to figuring out why leftists are undergoing a process of de-alignment from the workers that they used to speak for. But for some reason, don't really like them so much. What's up with the breakup? We'll get into that up next. Stay tuned.